Hello and welcome to Fun Fuse Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Popst, and today we're interviewing Rafael Martorello, or as he likes to be called, Raf. Raf is the founder of the Lotus Group based in Denver, Colorado. Raf talks about his use of an odd combination of education, combining engineering and economics with a bit of psychology and philosophy thrown in. After creating value for Fortune 500 companies for almost a decade, Raf decided to create value for himself, his family, and his wealth management clients, instead through a unique asset class called Life Settlements. So welcome, Raf. Um, you know, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, I just want to start off by um, uh, kind of starting at the beginning, I guess. And, and I see that, you know, you studied engineering as a major in college and had a minor in economics. Uh, what drew you more to the finance side? And, and did you kind of have a different career path or, or, or at the beginning? Or do you always kind of see engineering as a way into finance yeah, I appreciate the question. It's uh, it's sort of an interesting path. I, I grew up in New York and went to a, a math and science high school, uh, one of the sort of magnet schools there that's that's been around for, for a century plus uh, called Stuyvesant High School. And, and so, you know, my older brother did math. I did math. Uh, my my mom was a daughter of a Swiss banker, a very German kind of concept. And so, you know, we we really were pushed towards doing engineering uh, as a subject matter. And, you know, on the, on the other side of it, I was kind of always an entrepreneur as a kid and my parents, you know, we didn't have any real needs, but we also never got any wants, uh, very frugal, uh, parents really had to kind of scrap ourselves. So, you know, from a very young age, I was recycling cans when you could get five cents, five cents per can. I was washing windows, shoveling snow, doing paper routes, I even did a stint in high school of sort of running numbers on football games and, and uh, trying to make money any way possible. So when I went to college uh, at UVA, I actually took five years to graduate. And it was really, in my mind, what college was meant meant to do, which is sort of help you grow up and figure out what you want to do. And, and I had a transformation from knowing that I was good at math and good at engineering and that it was a highly useful topic. But I certainly didn't see myself designing the, uh, you know, a fin on the back of a refrigerator, uh, something so micro. And, and so this love of economics, this love of entrepreneurship, I really explored that in the economic side of it. And the math on the engineering really helped me uh, excel on the economic side on the courses that required math. And I'll say one last thing, which is sort of a, a sneaky minor that I never got down on paper. but. Uh, I probably read, uh, have read a hundred philosophy and psychology books too. It's sort of, as you get into entrepreneurship, trying to understand what makes people tick and why they do what they do. Uh, so, so through those five years, I spent a lot of time reading Nietzsche and, and Hume and, um, Ayn Rand and a lot of different, uh, topics. And, and one of my best friends who was, uh, in college with me and a roommate, his name was Wim Taylor. He, really taught me how to understand people. And here I come out of New York, you know, a lot of bravado, really trying to pump my chest up. That's sort of what you did when you grew up in New York. And he helped me figure out how to ask questions and how to really figure out people, where they're coming from. And so I kind of got this, this pseudo minor in psychology and philosophy while I was doing it. But yeah, I, I think I always knew I wanted to go into something 
that was much more business oriented, uh, much bigger picture than than what the engineering piece of it was. And so I, I use those five years as such. Yeah, and it makes sense. And, you know, that definitely resonates uh, with me as well. I, I spent, I think, seven years in college and, and another one afterwards <laughs> at the same college doing uh, started with computer science and, and moved into um, uh, multimedia design for a year and then into uh, minor or into one course in, in economics, which which got me involved in that and then did a minor in finance. Um, but uh, and went back to do to to half finish a second major in, in finance afterwards years later. So yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I agree with that, you know, people in college and, and you know, or, or young professionals or, or students or, or um, even in high school, when you're trying to figure out what, what you really want to do, you kind of have to do it in order to figure out that you don't want to do it. Um, there's no way that you can, someone can sort of tell you, um, you know, sometimes one way or the other, you have to kind of figure it out yourself by, uh, by just going for it. So, so Greg, uh, I'm, uh, I'm assuming you've fielded the same joke as I've fielded, which is, you know, the good old Tommy boy joke of, yeah, a lot of people graduate college in seven years. They're called. Doctors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a number of reasons why it took me that long, but, but the biggest one I switched programs three times and majors three times. So I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, at the, it, right? at the actual expense of, of paying money. <laughs> to you know, you got, but that's the time to do it. Right. And to figure it out and launch yourself in the right direction. And uh, I, I think that the folks are, are just spending the time and blindly, and then they wake up at 40 and they're like, what am I doing? Uh, I think taking a little extra time up front to kind of figure out, you know, am I doing these things because my parents told me this or society told me this, or mm-hmm. am I moving in the direction that I, I really am, am meant to do? You know, it's not, yeah. it's not an entitlement thing of uh, just, you know, I just will do what I want to do, but really finding that spot that, that is the intersection between what you're great at and where you're willing to put in all that perspiration to make it happen. And, and what pays the dividends, right? It's, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, I, you know, after switching twice, I said, well, now I'm going to have a, bunch of student debt so what can i do that'll pay off that student debt <laughs> but uh you know that that's that's always the goal is is trying to figure out something that you really like that that can actually pay you something is you know kind of the, the where 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 the goals are i guess or, or what goals you have in mind so being that you're you're talking bigger picture i'm assuming you enjoyed macroeconomics more than micro or, or what's the sort of the uh mindset there yeah i think it, it Again, it's sort of I'm, I'm a function of my upbringing. I had a, a German mom who was into sort of the micro, and I had yeah. an Italian dad who was into you know loving people and, and the macro. So when I look at problems, I, I love enjoying the macro and thinking about what are the major trends and and how do we tap into those and how do you see across different disciplines to see where you might be able to apply one thing to another. But then sort of my mom kicks in and, and uh, you know, you, you've got this engineer that says, how do we get this thing done? And you, you really start ratcheting it down. And, and you see that kind of attitude with, uh, you know, it used to be sort of white collar, blue collar. Those two people were separated. But now you see a guy like Musk, you know, he, he's a yeah. global thinker, big thinker. But then he also rolls up his sleeves and he knows how to get it done 
And, and you're seeing a lot more of that in, in today's world where you can't just sort of compartmentalize those two things. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Interesting. So, um, so what did you do after college? What's the, um, you, you know, what, what was kind of, how did you land your first position and, and what, what sort of was that um, uh, process like back then? So I, I feel super fortunate, you know, each, each group of college students come out and sometimes they're in good times and sometimes not quite as good times. Uh, I came out in 97, things were booming, doing well. I went and worked for AT Kearney, which was a management consulting firm that competed with Bain and, and McKenzie and those groups. And mm-hmm. essentially, they had a very simple recruiting process, which was go find an engineer who has a little bit of personality, and they'll probably <laughs> be pretty good. And yeah. um, and I remember them going through the engineering school and just sort of plucking a few of us out of there, uh, offering us a nice bonus and, and getting going. And you know, I, I would not trade that experience for anything. We, the first five years of my life, uh, work life, I was, you know, basically on the road, living out of hotels. And what was at first exciting later became exhausting. But what was great about it is, you know, I got to meet a ton of smart people. You know, they were picking the best of the best. Uh, the amount of work ethic to see partners in their 50s working 70-hour weeks and and what it took to succeed was huge. Uh, they would drop us also into Fortune 500 companies where these people didn't want us there, right? We, we were young 22, 23-year-olds making them look bad. And, and so you have to really learn how to fit in, how to handle crises, how to resolve issues. Uh, I remember being down in West Virginia once and you know, they were calling me a Yankee and, you know, flying out there. And, you know, what, I went with them and sang karaoke and put a put a hard hat on and, and they, they wrote Yankee on the front of it. And I just sang some karaoke with them and just had fun. And after that, they'd accept me. So, you know, it was such a great experience. And, and then you add on top of that the numbers. I mean, I'm 22 years old. I'm working for uh, Unilever was one of our clients. And they mm-hmm. put me in there and they had this process called strategic sourcing where you basically go out and you negotiate with vendors and you try to get the prices down for that company. And if you follow the process, you'd make about a 10, 12% price reduction. And, you know, I would have saved them about 10 million bucks, which in my mind was, you know, humongous. Yeah. Uh, But for me, I think the the engineering piece was able to come into business there. And I I didn't want to just do it the way they asked me to do it. I wanted to always look at what was the new edge, you know, what was the creative way and so I, I would use a sort of engineering process of hypothesizing, you know, a new way to try to save money, testing it, refining it, executing it. And essentially, I was able to, to double savings for these guys and get it up to $25 million worth of savings. And at 22, you know, the amount of confidence that you build where you're already doing a good job and then you double it and all the partners are excited about <laughs> what you're doing. And so, yeah, it was it was a great experience. And, and, and you got to see all of America, you know, the South, the East, the West, how different people are, you know, old school industries, uh, very advanced industries, and just basically see how business is run. And at the end of the day, it's just humans, right? It's a bunch of humans who are trying to execute on ideas and how you organize those people to, to drive results. Uh, what an incredible first five years. Yeah. that And that's, I guess, where that pseudo psychology comes in, <laughs> you know, uh, karaoke skills, you know, might be a, another pseudo minor, maybe. 
Well, I don't. I didn't say I sang it well. I just, <laughs> I just had enough guts to get up there and do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which you, you know what? That's that says a lot about about your personality, though, as well. And and a lot of people don't have those those guts, as you say, and they they aren't willing to take those kind of uh, leaps or or risks, especially in a social setting. So um, I appreciate that. I'll say one other thing about that that is is interesting is. You know, people oftentimes create the best solution on paper and then they hand it to someone else and that other person doesn't do it. And I I think what what really trying to get to a good result, whether it's in consulting or whether it's in running your business or entrepreneurship, is to get out of your box and kind of understand what that other human is going through. And, you know, oftentimes we have to figure out how do I how do I make this other person look great? You know, what is their agenda? Do they want a promotion? Uh, do they have three kids and they just need to be home at 3 p.m. in the afternoon to, to help out? Uh, what is it that makes them tick? And if you can kind of create a Venn diagram, which gra- grabs their needs and their desires, along with your solution, the ability to then drive an actual result ha- was compounded tremendously. And I, I took that that learning with me and I saw so many projects where you know, the best solution on paper never got implemented. But if you took the time to connect with the people and help them create a solution that they were really excited about, then it actually drove to to where you were trying to go. You you have to make them want to use your solution, right? They somehow they they get as excited as you are about it. And and they really they they force themselves. You have to make it super easy or effortless sort of to 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 make them use it. Yeah, I mean, I'd almost argue that it's, it's like, you know. It's like the movie Inception. Like you have to make it, it, it becomes their idea. Uh, and, it, and in some extent, you have to have enough humility to allow them to change your idea and mm-hmm. make it better so that it actually will functionally work for them. And, yeah. and then somewhat fall on your own sword and, and, and let them say, no, this was their program. You know, I just helped them tweak it and get it going. And, you know, we'll, I know we'll talk a little bit later about Lotus Group, but a lot of what we do at our firm is, you know, we have great humans and great people. And instead mm-hmm. of them being all my ideas, you know, my, my main job is really to try to help other individuals bring out in themselves their ideas. And, and how do we then coordinate all those and get them executed? So, yeah, those, those first uh, five years really helped me out and in, in, in just learning how people tick and, and how to get solutions that will actually work. Great, great. And so, Lotus, you know, now is as good time as any. You know, how, how did you transition to Lotus? Did you? I mean, Lotus is based in Denver. Was it always based in Denver or, or did you um, found it somewhere else or you were one of the co-founders? Am I correct? Yeah. So, you know, a couple stops in between AT Kearney and, and where we are today. But mm-hmm. uh, long story short, there, there came a point in time where, you know, I, I looked at my employers and, and the, the magical question was, you know, how do I make an unlimited amount of upside? Uh, you know, I don't I don't care what I have to do. Uh, Mm -hmm. just, just give me a formula. Tell me what I have to do. You know, tell me how much value I have to create in order to, uh, generate what I'd like to generate and, and to have that Play-Doh to, to work Mm -hmm. with. And, you know, too many times the answer came back was, you know, that's not how it works. Uh, you know, you, you can go this far, but you can't go farther. So somewhere around, uh, 2000s, 2002, 2003, I came to the realization that 
you know, you, you have enough skills, you have enough experience, you have enough of a network, and it's time to go off and do something on your own. And around that time, you know, conveniently the way life works, my wife and I also decided to have a kid. <laughs> all at the same time. So, you know, we're at, the, at that point in time, we're in San Francisco. Uh, we have a, a one-year-old. We're starting a brand new business. I'm trying to do my day job during the day. I'm doing my startup of the wealth management firm between, you know, let's say 8 p.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people who do wealth management come out of a big firm, you know, a Merrill Lynch or something yeah. like that. So we started from scratch. So when so when you start from scratch, there's some unbelievable benefits, but there's some real drawbacks too. So, you know, the benefits were I wasn't I wasn't hung up on any, you know, this is how the industry does it. So I could just ask people mm-hmm. consulting questions and say, hey, what do you want? And if I can build that for you, will you do business with me? So I wasn't held back by anything on that front. Uh, and we had some really nice insights and built it that way. But the negatives, though, uh, you know, you, you show up at a, a Fidelity or an Ameritrade and you say, hey, I'd like to get on your platform. Uh, I've got four or five clients to start. And they say, well, how, ma- how many millions of dollars do you have? And you say, well, I've got two million. And they say, <laughs> well, well, go pound sand until you've got 20. And so you're sitting there trying to figure out how you're going to serve these clients you know, we're, we're hand typing yeah. into spreadsheets at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know, hand creating quarterly reports. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was it, you can imagine any startup. You know, this is this is what it was. Late hours, uh, very detail oriented. But it was mine. Right. And, and my wife, bless her heart. She she left uh, I banking and she a uh, very justice oriented lady. And she said, look, you could be a broker, you could be an insurance agent, you could be an RIA, you've got to be an RIA. You know, they've got a fiduciary responsibility and, you know, mm-hmm. they're the ones, that's where you have to be. So she, I said, great, I mean, can you can you go do that for us? And so bless her heart, she worked with all the lawyers, got us registered. Uh, so here we are, right? Family of three, uh, child with reflux, throwing up all over the place, screaming oh, all night long. And, uh, you know, we're starting up this business in our in our apartment in in San Francisco. So that's kind of how I got started. It's a pretty uh, busy start, it sounds like. I, you know, you're, you're not the only one that I've heard with that kind of story where everything sort of happens all at once. And, you know, it makes me wonder kind of at what level does the family aspect of things, the, the ability to want more, uh, you know, or more financial freedom, so to speak, or want to want to have more ownership of what of, of your own future, um, what that family aspect does to drive that uh, motivation to start something or to, to build something, because a lot of people try and start something, but I don't think they, they, they realize how much work it is, and then they kind of give it up. Well, I, I think you're onto something. I mean, the, it's, we, we joke around and around our office. We, I've got several, several folks who work for us who are in there you know, late thirties and have kids and they joke around and they say, like, there's, there's nothing more motivating than having a bunch of kids and some debt that you got to pay off. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, for sure. yeah there, there, there's a lot of that. And um, I, I think the other thing is, you know, people I think are streaky and you get into working hard and you just start taking on more things. If, if you're kind of lazy and sitting around, you're, you're not really apt to, to start yeah. something new either. So there, there's a little bit of, sort of inertia versus streakiness in that. And I think sometimes it just all happens at the same time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a point I was working in a different industry, <laughs> working uh, like 11 hour days, five days a week and some weekends um, while, you know, eventually going back to school. And when I went back to school after that summer of working those long hours, school was easy. I mean, the, 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 the work that it took to keep up with a few classes on the side was, was, was didn't feel like the same as it did two years ago. Um, prior to that, when I, when I was, oh, I've got this report due or this report due. And so I feel like once you have a reference point of what hard work really is, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is, this is easy. This isn't that bad. Yeah. It it reminds me of the George Carlin skit of of how you should have done life in in reverse, but you know, (laughs) I've got a, I've got a teenager now and and a couple teenagers and how much they complain about the work at school. And, and to your point, you know, if they only knew, gosh, work at school, you know, I could get that wrapped up in probably two hours today <laughs> yeah. compared to, to, to what we do. But yeah, it's a, it's a good point. And then, you know, you, you asked how we got to Denver. Yeah. You know, I, I think it was interesting in, in about 2006, 2007, we had a condo, you know, in, in San Fran. Um, we're sitting there. It's right at that housing boom. And I walked into uh, the marina, into a, a coffee shop, and the Starbucks barista, I got to talking with him, and he, he's telling me he's on his fifth house that he's flipping. And I said, well, well, how are you doing that? He said, well, it's easy. You know, I, I buy one, and I, you know, just three months later, the thing's worth 25 grand more. I refi it. I take out the 25 grand. I do another one. I said, well, how many are you on? He's like, I'm on my seventh one. Uh, <laughs> I went home that evening and I, I looked at Megan, my wife, and I said, we need to sell this house and we need to sell it like within two weeks. And she, bless her heart. I mean, she's she is an engineer herself. Uh, I take orders from her all day, every day. But occasionally I have a strong opinion about stuff. And, sh- and she just said, are, are you serious? We're, you know, <laughs> we're really just going to lift up. And, you know, imagine her. She's She's part of these mommy and me groups with these wealthy hoity-toity ladies in San Francisco. And she has to go into the next meeting and say, we moved out of a house that we own and we're moving back into a rental. <laughs> and and it makes total sense. And so I, I, bl- I bless her for for having having the courage to do that. Wow. But yeah, we, we, we wrapped that thing up. We had 150 people walk through our, our, our condo in, in a weekend. We sold it. We were a year early. Uh, but we basically said, all right, now that we're done and, and we've got this going, where do we want to live? And as two incredibly dorky humans would do, uh, you know, we put four different cities on spreadsheets, went into two different rooms, <laughs> put down criteria. We each had 100 uh, percent and we ranked them all out and Denver ended up on top. Wow. Interesting. That, I mean, that's as rational as it can get by uh, by definition of of you know, why you ended up in Denver. <laughs> yeah. It, it's about the least romantic, most rational <laughs> way possible. <laughs> yeah. Which, which says a lot about the choice of city as well, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently my German mom won on that one and not my dad. <laughs> but yeah, yeah we, we've been here now since, since then, which was uh, now 15 years ago. And I, you know, I can't complain. Uh, having grown up in New York, lived in San Francisco, flown around the country, I mean, this is a slice of heaven out here. You know, the weather's the weather's temperate. Uh, people are friendly. 
Uh, you have a very good mix of, of politics, so you have a good uh, a good balance on that front. And yeah, I, I think it's grown tremendously in the last ten years. I think other people are, are figuring it out, and um, yeah, it's it's been a great place to live. Yeah, I've um, I, I've been to Denver twice in my life, and both in the past two years. So, uh, what'd you think? It's great, great city. Um, I, I like the Boulder area a little more. I think the outside of Denver areas are are a little. Uh, more interesting to me but the the city itself was really cool and we went to a baseball game my my uh, sister's a sports fanatic and so um she dragged me out to a baseball game and and uh and um you know it was really fun it was a good time i tell you i think the only gripe we have is uh having having lived in on both the coastal cities the the restaurants are still not quite there yet with with the other ones um, it, it, it'll come it'll but, come. and these days everyone's doing takeout anyway so it probably doesn't yeah. yeah i could see that in denver it'd be more of like a farm to table sort of uh sort of place you know yep yeah interesting well that's that's quite the story of uh denver and so you you were Starting Lotus up in in LA or, or sorry San Fran and yep, San Fran San Fran and then you moved to Denver. How you just pick up obviously and move your business kind of um, yeah. everything's online I guess at that point right Yeah I mean we were we were, we had a group of clients in San Francisco but then we we grew to clients who were their parents and their sisters and brothers and friends and so we we always had a virtual presence and and you know it just seemed it seemed like something we could do. Uh, and so we went ahead and did it. And, you know, these days everyone's using zoom. We used go to meeting for the last decade and it was totally fine. Um, all of a sudden everyone wants to see people's faces. Yeah. <laughs> the video wasn't enough, but, um, yeah, I think, I think it's been great. And, you know, through that process, we ended up then growing two different firms. So Lotus group consists of a, a retail wealth management firm that, uh, now I've had two younger partners who've bought into the business and, and run that wealth management firm uh, really nicely. And then we have Lotus Group Capital, which has grown out of that firm, is an alternative asset manager that's focused on life settlements. And mm-hmm. you know, each of those businesses sort of feed each other a little bit. Uh, but certainly Lotus Group Capital, the, the lion's share of that business is done with other uh, investment advisors and other shops. Yeah, that's and that's a really interesting space. I've had the pleasure of of getting to know over the past few years. But um, for for our listeners out there that don't know what life settlements is, I'll take a quick pause. And you know, a lot of the students that I've spoken to, you know, and my alumni and 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 other people that didn't know what it was are are pretty interested in in that space and and usually haven't heard of it before. But some people probably have. Uh, Raf, do you want to? Want to start it off? Want to kind of give us an overview of what what is a life settlement, and then um, uh, go from there? Sure. Uh, you know, a, a life settlement is essentially so. So they'll call it a, a primary, secondary, and tertiary. So primary is just if you, as a human, buy life insurance from a broker or from a firm uh, for whatever reasons, estate planning, protection, etc. You're the primary purchaser of that life insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may come a time in your life where uh, you don't want it anymore or you don't need it anymore. Uh, you know, some people outgrow it. Sometimes tax laws change. Sometimes you just need the money. Uh, oftentimes you see these secular trends where older folks who had the life insurance and now they're kind of running out of money and they 
they can solve this in two ways. So rather than turning over that life insurance to the insurance company, which the, the statistics will show you that almost 80% of life insurance contracts are turned over back to the insurance company after paying into them for years. And so no mm-hmm. death benefit is ever paid out. They receive usually almost no value back. And, and so it's sort of a losing cause. And, and there's a reason why insurance companies have some of the nicest buildings in some of the nicest cities in America. So we come along and, and we say, look, hey, I know you're in a tough spot or I know you're planning with your advisor here and you'd like to have better cash flows. Instead of turning that over to the insurance agent for nothing, uh, mm-hmm. we'll pay you for that. Right. And we will buy that policy from you. So as an example, let's say it's a million dollar policy and uh, someone expects that this human will live another 10 years. We we may buy it from them for two hundred thousand dollars. Then it is our obligation to pay their premium payments until they pass away, which is called a maturity. Mm -hmm. And at maturity, we would then collect that million dollar payment. So Mm -hmm. if you think of sort of those parties, you've got the insured who gets a cash payout from us. And then you have us and our investors who buy that from them. We have the obligation to pay those premiums, Mm -hmm. but we eventually collect the settlement at the end, that million dollars. And so it's a completely uncorrelated asset class to the economy. It's a completely Mm -hmm. uncorrelated asset class to the stock market. Uh, If done properly, you know, you can make teen type of returns. Mm -hmm. And these assets also tend to increase in value literally every month, right? Because with Mm -hmm. every month that passes, there's a measurable uh, amount of probability that increases that this person will pass away, right? So if they're 80 and then the next year they're 81, they're yeah. one year closer to when they would pass away and you can sell that asset for a larger dollar amount. So essentially we're just monetizing these for individuals. Uh, it's become a very accepted practice. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably two decades ago, there were there were some uh, sort of cowboys out there that were doing it, but it's regulated in over 40 states. You know, the AARP ranks it as a very high uh, high degree of planning. You know, they, they love this as a planning tool. Mm-hmm. And from our standpoint, our investors love it because it kind of works like a fixed income replacement. And in this day and age with, you know, your 10-year treasury at, at 0.5% or so, uh, this is a way to really create that ballast in your portfolio against, you know, your more equity-like types of positions. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And so so um, back to kind of Lotus, um, you know, what, what kind of drew you guys into life settlements? What, what was sort of the origin there, um, story there? You know, I, I think we had sort of two things going on. First of all, the, our clients loved it. I mean, they mm-hmm. this, this was... This was probably by far and away their their favorite thing. I mean, people, I think in general, I think when they get into investing, and this is what you know I've realized in the last 16 years in the business, is they read books about, you know, how are you going to get this 8 to 10% return uh, in the stock market? And what ends up happening is it doesn't happen in a straight line, right? Investing is very choppy. And so some years you might make 20%, other years you could go down. And I think people you know, they sort of come into this and, and they have an illusion that every year they're going to have this consistent return. 
And that's why so many people get on and off the bus at the wrong time. And, and even though those long-term returns are there, they, they never really generate them. And, you know, there's big studies from the Dalbar group, et cetera, that are out there that show that. Um, so what's interesting is this one kind of solves that problem, right? This is an asset that is not going to make 200% return in any given year, mm-hmm. uh, but it's going to every single month chug forward just a little bit. And so if done properly, it actually fits the, the profile of investors of what they really want uh, desperately, right? This is the same reason why people love, hey, I'm going to have this rental property and it's going to just pay me this check every month. And t- until they have a problem and the economy goes south and they've got, they love it, right? They just love that consistency. Uh, and so this fits that bill. And so our clients were just, you know, they really, really wanted to have this. Well, so then we started to step back and, again, thinking about this as a consultant, um, you have to decide, do I want to make this or do I want to buy this, right? Do I want to go to someone who's already doing this today or should we build this ourselves in-house? And 19 out of 20 times, we do not build it in-house, right? 19 out of 20 times, our job is to take care of the clients and to put them in touch with the best people for those particular asset classes. And so, you know, in things like uh, mid-market lending, you know, we were partnered with a, a firm that does $2 billion in business and they charge us only 65 basis points. We're like, all right, that's great. We don't need to do that again. Let's just keep working with that group. Interestingly, in life settlements, this was a market that it's big enough to be regulated, but it only does $2 billion of new business each year. All the rest of the transactions are just portfolio managers that are trading with each other. So it's just not large enough for any of the large, large institutions to get involved with it. And mm-hmm. so what you have are sort of three, four, five, you know, a sort of a handful of smaller managers. And A, you know, they're charging two and 20. Uh, B, they're buying everything in front of them that that moves. You know, a, a lot of these were, were led in by brokers, salespeople. Mm. Um, And we just felt like, A, we could cut some costs out of the supply chain. You know, again, going back to my consulting roots. And B, we thought that there was some alpha to be generated here by looking at each policy. And we can talk about that a little bit more. uh, But each policy is like a snowflake. Uh, You know, they look the same on the outside, but if you look closely, they're all different. They have different riders and different payments. and, And so, I think the three or four groups that were out there, not only were they charging higher amounts than we thought were, were, were possible, uh, but they also were kind of just buying everything instead mm-hmm. of more discreetly looking at, you know, which snowflake was going to be advantageous to them and which snowflake they didn't want to have in their portfolio. So we, we built a team around that. Uh, we got going researching that in 17. Uh, we got launched in 18. We started bringing those resources in-house. And, you know, we, we've been off to the races since then. Uh, I think we just tapped 150 policies that we've purchased. Uh, we're a little bit over 130 million in face value of, of purchases. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so far it's been going really well. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's definitely an interesting asset class. I, I know for a lot of people and that makes sense that your investors would be interested as well with yields as low as they are and, you know, Returns can be higher in, in, in this case. And, and as you said, it's more of a stable, chugging along sort of investment. But um, it's, you know, 
it's interesting that you um, kind of got drawn in and, and, and figured out that the, the market was only so big, right? And, and, and again, uh, for our listeners' benefit, I know um, that you're talking more about the secondary market. And the tertiary market is, is these big groups buying from each other. So you're just shoveling the same policies around back and forth as opposed to the secondary market where you're, where you're buying policies from individuals that originally had bought them themselves. Um, but it's, you know, is there any sort of nuance or anything that you've learned over the past couple of years in life settlements that, that you, that, you know, you never would have expected or, um, you know, I know that there on, on the flip side, there's some negative press that seems to be out there on life settlements occasionally. Uh, I've seen like the words death bond used before and, you know, it, Personally, I, I don't see any problem with it. In fact, I, I think it's the opposite, more of an impact in investment uh, more than anything because of, um, as you said, the benefit that it's sort of like a reverse mortgage in a way where you're, you're giving liquidity to an asset, but um, that, that isn't typically liquid. But uh, is there anything that you've learned in the past couple of years that you want to share? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of questions there. I, I think to, to echo what you're saying, um, 100%. I mean, the story is that when we're buying in the secondary market, the stories that you hear of, of why they're selling, uh, if they can't sell to us, they can't get access to certain kinds of trials and drugs that they need to potentially help save their lives or extend their lives or, or have a better, mm -hmm. better quality of life, right? So cancer patients, um, folks who need a heart transplant, uh, people who need a liver transplant, uh, all these types of folks, oftentimes the insurance denies them. And if they want to get on a trial and they want to do these things, they've got to come up with the money. And if we are not there as an option to help supply that to them and mm -hmm. do it in a very professional manner where we just run it through our underwriting, you know, we're not here to, to, to take advantage of that situation. We will run it through and give them an absolutely fair price uh, based mm -hmm. on what the market uh, offers out there. And that helps liquefy and, and gives them the cash to do what, what they want to do. Um, some other interesting things that, that we do out there that uh, haven't been done enough, but we've been doing them a lot, is we're doing fractional purchases. So, you know, if a, if a, if a group comes to us and, you know, you've got your beneficiaries and you've got the parents and the parents might need some money right now or they want to do one last trip around the world. But the kids also have some real estate need. You know, maybe they have a illiquid farm and they need to use the, the proceeds of the insurance to pay for the taxes. Mm -hmm. We'll sit there and work with that family to do a very bespoke deal for them where we essentially say, look, we won't buy that whole policy from you. Let's say it's a $10 million policy. We'll buy $5 million from you so that you have that cash that you need right now then we will pay all the premiums. So you're not at risk. You don't have to pay those premiums. But when your loved one passes away, we'll still be able to give your family that other 5 million that helps take care of that. So we get into these big conversations with the financial advisors of these of these clients um, and and really you're just helping solve these things uh, for those folks. So, you know, those are, again, it's, it's back to this thing I said at the beginning. You can come up with a mathematical answer and I think what you know what we saw in this industry were there were a lot of brokers who were very sales focused and just bought everything, mm -hmm. and then on the opposite side you had a lot of actuaries who just were so deep into their computers and they would just do a numerical answer, 
And the answer actually lies somewhere in between again, this kind of blend of being able to be a good people person, but also to be able to do the math so you know that you're getting your edge and really connecting with those families. And, and I think the industry struggle, and that's where we've come in is have this really good approach where you have a methodical process that understands exactly what you want to pay, but you understand the human elements of how to solve that for that family. You know, do you want to sell the whole thing? Do you want to sell a piece of it? What if we buy some of it now and another piece of it in a year? Uh, is there a different way that we can do this for your family? You know, so those kinds of elements have, have been really great. And then, you know, I'll add one last thing. You said, you know, what are some of the new things coming down? Um, mm -hmm. I think every industry that's that's sort of not been attacked yet by technology, uh, not been addressed. Uh, th this is another one of those industries where the data sometimes is not full. So what I mean by that is you may get a policy from a family that comes in and you really need their illustration. You need the whole rider. You need all the information. But the family says, look, this is all I can get right now. I don't have all the information, but I want you to put a bid in. So you'll have, you know, a third of the people won't bid because they don't have all the information. Mm -hmm. uh, you have another third who just bid blindly and don't really know. And then you have our group, which continues to build databases by carrier, by product, by year so that we understand what the information is behind that. So if, we, if we're missing a piece of information, we can go back to our database that keeps learning and we can say, we know exactly what that policy is. This is how it performs. This is what it does. Let's go ahead and bid on that. And, and that's how you kind of win in this industry uh, is to try to figure that out with the, the least amount of information. Yeah, interesting. Definitely uh, makes sense. And I imagine, you know, going forward the, as the industry grows, the, um, and gets more regulated, it becomes even better for the consumer, right? Because uh, you have more groups bidding on these policies, and 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 um, you know it can be better for for the end um, uh, uh, seller of that policy. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, you, uh, two trends that you, you'll see is one is sort of a macro trend, and then the other one's an asset trend. So the macro trend is obviously interest rates are coming down. And so this, it's sort of the same thing. Like if you think about a spread over a treasury, um, as interest rates continue to go down, the spread over that to this asset class should continue to come down as well, right? So that's sort of the macro setting of it. Then more to your point, if you think about like how junk bonds worked, right? Michael Milken came out with these things in the 80s and you know, the, he could charge 25, 30% for them all the way to today. You buy the JNK as an ETF and, you know, you're getting three, 4%. It's that efficient. So life settlements have, you know, about a decade ago, we we're sitting at about 20% discount rates. Today, they sit at about a 14 to 15% discount rate. So mm -hmm. your ability to generate return is still fantastic. Uh, I don't, you know, I'd argue 14, 15%. Uh, minus costs is, is still an incredible return for this type of a class, mm -hmm. but it's not 20 uh, of what it used to be. And as you continue to drive those efficiencies, it'll likely come down. Now, the good thing is, just like with real estate, uh, if you're a new player, that's a, that's a problem for you. But if you're an existing player that already has a portfolio like we do, every time the interest on it comes down in the market, it's just like a cap rate in real estate. Our portfolio will be worth that much more. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. 
Great. And but yeah, I, I got to tell you, Greg, I, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I, I mean, <laughs> like every time, I, I think we only win about 7% of our cases. So you yeah, know, we do all the underwriting. We work on these things. We talk to the families. Um, we kick out some that we don't want to buy. The family sometimes withdraws. Sometimes we lose to other people. But we end up winning 7% of these. When we win them, so let's say we win a million dollar face and I put 400 grand to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that night when I go to bed, I, I'm like, I just put 400 grand to work at a 15% discount rate. I mean, I, I just don't know where I can do that in the market. Yeah. And so for as much work as it takes to get that going uh, each time, right? Only a 7% hit rate. Mm-hmm. When it does happen, I just, I, every time, the last 150 times we've done it, you know, I just pinch myself and I say, this is the greatest asset class ever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I echo that. And it, you know, for one, I think uh, it's a great um, connection of, of both sides of, of, you know, your history, right. And in, in engineering with the math side and then psychology and you're sort of, again, you know, combine, combining both of those to, to find a, an area that you can still use both sides. Um, but on, on the flip side as well, you know, um, there's gotta be like running a, a firm. It can't just be you that's doing this. Right. So it's, you know, how, how has that process been with Lotus group, like growing the firm and, and hiring people and, and, you know, are, I'm assuming you guys are growing given that you're buying all these policies. Yeah. And- it's a, let's just say this, it's an incredible process to me, you know, what started as this conversation with a manager of how can I make more money? Uh, money to me at this point has become sort of the Plato to be able to hire unbelievable people that I can work with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really not even a function of making money anymore. It's the, the, the more resource we have, the more people we can bring on who, who I'm just enamored by. So, uh, for example, that database we were talking about, mm-hmm. we hired uh, two underwriters, uh, one at first, and we just brought in the other one full time, who've been underwriting for 10 plus years. And we sort of talked through this concept and and they worked with a separate person on my team to basically build this database and have it continually learn from itself. And I'm just unbelievably amazed when we get a, a policy that comes in that in the past, we might either have to lowball bid or pass. And now we can just run it through the database and say, no, we can fill in all these gaps. And we know with confidence we can bid here. Uh, mm-hmm. And win it. So to see that is incredible. Uh, we've got another gentleman at our firm who's, uh, for the first time I think ever in this industry, he's using Salesforce uh, and implementing it for us to to stitch together all the different providers, right? So you mm-hmm. you've got a servicer, you've got a bank, you've got an accountant. Uh, you know these policies, people have to follow up to make sure are these people still alive. So you've got all these different databases and. Again, all these other firms are having to log into all these different places. So to have him stitching this all together so we can log into one spot in Salesforce and see all of it interacting is great. And then, you know, there's some other pieces. Again, as a consultant, you don't have to do everything in-house. So we're also always seeking out who are these incredible third parties. Uh, I'll just mention one here because I this stuff blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with a group that's in, in the Maryland area. Uh, these are folks who are, who studied like the Okinawans and why they live so long and they do genetic testing and they figure out, you know, which kind of genes, you know, why do 19 smokers out of 20 
die early, but that one person, you know, that one George Burns who could smoke cigars <laughs> 102 and still live. Why does George Burns as a smoker not live? Right. And, you know, I, I went ahead and I, I spit in the sample and sent it to them and tested it out and, you know, talked to these guys. And, and when I got my results back, I was like, do I really want to see this? You know, do I have the <laughs> team that lets me live long or you know, am I going to have to quit this whole thing and start parting it up a little bit? But the work that they are doing now, now I don't know if we'll be able to get that into this industry because there are privacy concerns. There's, but for example, one of the biggest issues in this industry is the small guy, the guy who's got a $50,000 policy, the, the retired grandmother who's got a $25,000 policy. The broker doesn't want to spend the time with that person to go get medical records, to go mm -hmm. order a life expectancy and to bring it to us to bring the market because he's only going to make a thousand bucks on it. So that person gets underserved. We miss out on an opportunity, but is there possibly a way for us to have them spin in a vial and just look at the genetics? And mm -hmm. then secondly, do a quick like script run on their pharmacy and we won't get it perfect, but can we get an approximation and put some fudge factor in there that we can still get an offer out to that person who would normally not get an offer at all? So those are kind of the fun things that we're doing. And uh, surely it takes our entire team to get those types of things uh, done. And and it's it's really, to me, it's unbelievably fun to do that. I'll say one last thing. Uh, sure. Obviously, you've kind of figured out that I, that I, I like talking. I got a lot of, a lot of ideas. On <laughs> um, right now we're incredibly focused on this, but uh, in the 10 years ahead with the amount of knowledge we're accumulating on understanding how to estimate how long someone will live and mm -hmm. what, you know, what traits they have, what behaviors, their BMI, their, their blood, are they taking statins, et cetera. There is absolutely a business on the other side of this as well, right? It's, it's sort of a uh, where we can think through. Uh, and again, I'm not there right now. We're focused on this. We will be for the very long future. But I can absolutely see our brand taking off the other side of this to say, hey, now that we know so much about how uh, long you'll live and why, uh, what can we actually do for people to help tweak those things so that they can live longer? And I, yeah. think I think there's a business there that as we continue to have this cross-section of data, of information, of trends, and also of this genetic piece kicking in, I think there's a lot there that I'd love to explore in the future. Yeah, so, sounds like something that uh, could be in a TED Talk in a in, in number of years. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. You know what I mean? I'd like to, besides just interesting, I want to monetize it. You know, if it's just, <laughs> it's just interesting. If someone's willing to pay for it, that means you're onto something good. Absolutely. Well, um, one, one last question and then, then we'll call it a day. But um, Raph, is there any advice that you would give your, either if you want to talk to your former self or, or talk to, you know, young professionals or students out there, what, what would you, what advice would you give them, uh, you know, in, in today's world? Gosh, uh, that could probably kind of be an open question, you know, but that could probably be a two hour conversation. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some great podcasts with Rogan and Peterson that are out there and, you know, there's great books like The Obstacle. You know, I think, you know, I, I really, truly believe that finding finding happiness in what you do. Right. So it, 
it's not just, hey, pick something that you're going to love and the sort of entitled nature of that. It's more, hey, what you're doing right now, find a way to make that fun and enjoyable. Find a way to be creative in what you're doing currently so that you're not sitting there complaining and being a victim about it, but you're finding the way to have fun with that then use that as a stepping stone to get to the next piece, right? Don't just drop everything and, and move to the next. Constantly use these things as stepping stone to the next area. If you do that in conjunction with a longer term plan, it's just like investing how things compound as returns. Your experiences, your joy, your sense of worth from producing things and doing a good job in what you're doing right now you'll become this happier person that's more productive and you'll keep making progress. And if you just keep compounding those things, you will eventually get to these answers. And look, there's a million opportunities out there. If the one right in front of you doesn't work, there's going to be another one that comes up and you just keep on doing the best you possibly can in that one and then translate that into the next thing. If you can keep doing that, you'll be surprised. You know, you put an extra 10, 20% in and five years later, 10 years later, 15, 20 uh, you'll be surprised when you look back if you focus on that process instead of being envious of where you're trying to get to. Thanks. Th- thanks for the advice. And thanks for, uh, for joining us on the Fun Views podcast uh, for episode two. Appreciate the opportunity, Greg. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Rob. Take care. And that's it for today's show. I hope you found it insightful and entertaining. Please follow us on Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, and visit our website at Fun Views Podcast or funviewspodcast.com. Until next time.